everyone, I'm Margie Alanese, and this is Farm Her Talks, thoughtful conversations to connect and inspire the farm her in all of us. You've heard me say it before, everybody eats and all food starts at the farm. So we are celebrating Veterans Day. November 11th is actually Veterans Day and we wanna honor all who have served. I've had the opportunity to meet with some extraordinary people recently who happen to be veterans and farmers. Not only did they serve our country, but they serve the agriculture industry every day, locally in their communities and as an industry overall by using a regenerative agriculture approach to their farm. So I want you to meet married couple Brittany and Chris. Their story is not like any other I've been able to tell. So let's dive right into this nationwide sponsored Everybody Eats podcast. Okay, so thank you for joining us, Brittany and Chris, and thank you for your service to our country. So how are you guys doing today? All the way from Indiana over here to Iowa. Good, good, good. Okay, well, let's jump right into it. Um, First of all, I I don't have couples on here very often, so I want to talk a little bit about your story and how you met, and I know you both are veterans, uh, so can can you tell me a little bit about where you served, and maybe each of you can tell me that if it's different. I was um, TDY at Fort Huachuca, and uh, which is in Arizona, Wait, and I was there. What's for a TDY? A, I'm sorry to interrupt right away. TDY. It's pretty much just when you um, in the military when you go to different um, duty stations or different areas of it's just a, like a training event. Okay. And so I was there for a aircraft qualification course, and one of my mutual friends that also is a mutual mutual friend of Chris was there, and he introduced us at actually the uh, hotel breakfast bar. We met briefly, and then I didn't see him again until we were deployed in Afghanistan. We were both in Bagram, and I was at the office, and I come down the stairs, and there he is uh, standing next to the desk, and I'm like, I know you, and he was like, I know you too, and Um, We just became really great friends during that deployment. Um, During deployments, that's all you really have time is just to talk with each other and get to know each other. And we talked about everything from our past, his kids, what our plans were for the future. And then um, as it was getting near the end of my deployment, one of my friends had sent me a wedding invitation and I asked him to go to a wedding with me. Um, and then the rest is history. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. So, um, I mean, isn't it crazy how like all of these parts and pieces come together and you're like, we are in the right place at the right time, uh, and meeting the right people. So what parts of the military uh, were you in? Or I assume you're in the same, uh, branch. Yes. So I, uh, I've only been in the army and I started off flying Black Hawk helicopters for a few years and then I transferred to fixed wing. Um, and I was stationed in Savannah and then Germany. And it was during my deployment while I was stationed in Germany is when I met Chris. And then I got um, moved to Texas, and that's where he was. So I I graduated from Irmdale High School. They were just outside of Des Moines. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm literally like I, I could throw a stone and hit Urbandale from where we're at. So I know what you're talking about. Uh, I joined, Right out of high school, I joined the Marines. Uh, started out in the reserves. I was stationed there at Dago Company 224. Uh, with the infantry unit there in Des Moines. After a few years, decided to make the transfer to the Army. Wanted to continue flying. It's kind of my dream as a kid. So I transferred over to the Army, went active duty in 2003, flew helicopters, uh, scout helicopters. Uh, after a deployment to 
Iraq in 2008. I became a fixed-wing pilot flying King Airs, and uh, then I flew multiple variants, Army fixed-wing aircraft. And eventually, in 2015, uh, I went to a, to a school where I ran into Brittany. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we just got, she like, like she said, we were, had mutual friends, and it was ironic that she went back to Germany after the class. I went back to Texas, and about a month or two later, I ran into her in Afghanistan. It's actually a very small world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, small. Like he flew um, at a unit. It was called three seventeen, and he was with that unit at Fort Drum. Well, that unit moved to Savannah, and that's where I was. And so, literally, we when I was deployed, and we would later talk about it, we had a ton of mutual friends, mm-hmm. and it was like a reunion at the wedding when I saw some of them again because they were all friends with Chris before they moved to Savannah, and so. <laughs> It was just such a small world of how many people that we hadn't known. Yeah. Just at different times. Yeah. So, so Chris, you mentioned, I, I think you were saying that Brittany was in Germany. Can, Brittany, can you tell me a little bit about your time in Germany? Yeah, I was um, stationed in a place called Wiesbaden. It's about, I think it's like an 30, for about 45 minutes from Frankfurt, Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there for two years, but that's not including the time I spent away like for training. And during, I also did a six month deployment in there too. And I was flying VIP aircraft, which was the C-12 uniform. So we got to fly to all kinds of different countries. Um, you know, I mean, we did train flights to Italy and London and things like that. So it was an awesome, a great experience. And I lived actually downtown Wiesbaden. So I actually got to live, you know, in the German economy. And so that was, it was awesome. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm sure, gained so much perspective about the world when you can live right there and, and be a part of that economy, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. And my uh, grandpa, he was in World War Two, And when uh, he got actually, he was a POW and was captured by the Germans. And he actually did his solitary confinement and interrogation in Frankfurt. And so to be so close to where he was in World War II and how much everything's changed, it was it was just such an interesting and amazing experience. Yeah. Uh, I just got chills when you said that. What a story. Um, yeah. 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 Very. I guess I would say that all of the service that you have given and that your family has given, thank you. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's all that. so very important uh, to us as a country. So, um, okay. So you're both pilots. Um, so... Chris, I know you said you you went to Urbandale. So my guess huh? is maybe you didn't grow up on a farm. I, that's just a stab in the dark. No. But but did you did you have any agriculture around you growing up? I did. Um, the Casey's that's over there <laughs> uh, on the northwest side of Urbandale. Yeah, was kind of was kind of our second home as kids. All that area was all cornfields. Uh huh. Um, so at the time, eleven. You know, I was age eleven. We were all throwing newspapers you know, at three o'clock in the morning, then some of us would catch the bus there at Casey's and go out and detassel corn yep. for Pioneer and DeKalb and all those folks uh, all summer long is either do, you're doing construction or that, yep. you know, so, uh, and then, you know, when I turned 14, me and my buddies, we all went and got jobs at McDonald's or Royal Fork Buffet or wherever. Oh, I know exactly <laughs> like, what you're talking about. Not everybody would. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that was my uh, kind of, uh, introduction into agriculture, you know, was really detasseling corn. Yeah. Um, and being around the state fair all the time, you know, my folks and my <laughs> friends, we'd always go, you know, and see the, 
who who's got the biggest pig, you know, and yep. and all that stuff. And and I never really got into 4-H. I was always interested in it. But, you know, just, you know, my parents worked a lot. They, you know, three jobs trying to make things ends meet. And so we did what we did. And yeah, well, you just described uh, kind of a typical Iowa kid life, I guess I would say, mm -hmm. because I, I also worked for Pioneer. I didn't detassel. I pollinated. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, like that was just what you did in the summers and, um, yeah. you know, 4-H, I, I did get to be in 4-H, but, you know, I, I tell people all of the time, well, I didn't grow up in a, in a farming family, you can't throw a rock from anywhere and not hit a piece of agriculture here in Iowa, especially from a True. Casey's, right? So, um, yeah, so I, I well, hear you. And that, you know, I mean, in, in, an, I, I graduated in 95, so um, like all the early nineties, you know, Garth Brooks is, you know, entertainer of the year and going crazy. And, you know, the rodeo was hitting down tri-state rodeo and, you know, following tough Edeman and going through all that. That's, that's what we did as kids. And once, you know, we were 16, 17 years old, we'd load up in a friend's truck or whatever and go drive to a local rodeo or, you know, and do stuff like that. So we were always, maybe not, being fully engulfed and being in a farm, but all we ever did was right. run around and chase rodeos and <laughs> sounds fun. Sounds wannabe fun. farms, you know, but bunch yeah. of wannabe cowboys, you know, city slickers. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, again, in Iowa, you know, you have that opportunity to engage in all of those different types of things that gives you a glimpse right. at it, right? And and so I think right. that's pretty cool. So Brittany, tell me about you. Did you grow up engaged in agriculture at all? No, um, my dad, uh, he grew up on a farm and the most experience I had with it is at one point when we lived in Georgetown, which is about you know, 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes from where we live now, we had about 10 acres. And so we had a, a tractor with a bush hog to help mow that. So that was my big experience <laughs> with dealing with tractors and stuff. But other than, you know, his stories of working on a farm and, you know, back then he had, um, he worked for parts for a car. He didn't work for cash. He worked for parts for stuff and everything back then it wasn't as electronic. So you actually got to work on all the tractors. You got to do all that hands-on. And uh, I have another uncle that lives in Wisconsin and he owns a dairy farm. But I mean, other me personally, I have, I had zero yeah. experience. So it was, it was like an exponential learning curve. It was just going vertical <laughs> our first year. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I do think that it's obviously to everybody, you're here on our Farm Her podcast, so you're engaged in agriculture. So tell me, like, what was your path since neither of you had this, like, really clear, like, yes, we have this family farm and this is what we're going to go do. Like, how did how did you guys land on we, we want to start farming? Well, initially, you know, when you're in the military or any veteran probably understands this is that you spend so much time away from home. And when you think about, okay, what kind of job can I have? Not only where I get to be home, but I get to involve my entire family. I get to, you know, my parents or and the kids and get them to all work together. And what better job is that than farming? Yeah. Um, you know, we spent so much time deployments and training events and things like that. We wanted a job or we wanted to do something that we could be involved with our kids more and have that quality time. And so when it was about a year out from me getting out of the military or active duty, cause I'm still in the reserves, um, 
we started looking into land and we started looking into different styles of farming that we wanted to pursue. And, you know, really it was just the, you know, we went into that planning phase of what we really wanted to do. And so we found the place that we're at now at the time it was, um, it was 30 acres, 35, 35 acres. And then we ended up buying some land after our neighbors moved. Um, so now we have a total of about 63 acres. And so, um, then, you know, we got the house and then it was the plan. Like, what are we going to do with the land that we have? Right. So, right. Which is, I mean, if, again, if there was no blueprint laid out for you, like no. what a, what a wide open space to, to think about what you were going to do. So, uh, Chris, I'm going to direct this to you. So when you were thinking about what type of farm, like what were you going to do with that land? Can you tell me about like what you guys researched and, and where you landed? Well, I, when I was in the reserves in the Marine Corps, I was going to, I was going to school at Indian Hills Community College, right? Um, in Ottumwa. And I was working part, you know, full-time on a farm down in Fairfield, Iowa, in southeastern Iowa, mm-hmm. um, as a ranch hand. I was living in a single-wide trailer. Um, you know, we ran cattle and hogs, had corn and all that stuff. Um, but I was their only farmhand until harvest season. So I saw how a lot of the big commercial ag stuff worked. Wasn't a huge fan of it. it it's farming. I, I don't, you know, I... I I fully support and think that commercial agriculture does have its place. Right. But when I, when I think about farming our land and every piece of land is different right? Uh, and you, you have to listen to what your land says to figure out what you want to do with it. And then I think it's our job as farmers and caretakers of the land to, to really mold it to what it, what it can do. So um, that part really started hitting home with me when I started researching a lot more looking at what we could do with the land. And initially because of our schedules, us both being pilots, you know, I was like, well, you know, we can get into hay farming, you know, farming in general. And I I think this is why, you know, the average farmer right now is 65 years old. It's it's just so capital intensive. Yeah. You know, the the equipment's so God awful expensive and the land's getting more and more expensive. We know houses aren't getting any cheaper, (laughs) but you know, so it's really hard for a young first generation farming couple or person to, to get into agriculture because it is, it is so expensive, you know, like any other business. Um, you've got a huge overhead. And so we were like, okay, let's get into hay farming. You know, we'll get the equipment and it's probably even used equipment for that kind of stuff. You know, you're, you're easily into a hundred thousand dollars. Right. Um, not including the land and the house and everything else. And we went out and got our soil uh, sample tested and realized that it was so nutrient deprived. It looked great. The grass was green, had great look like good pasture grass. But when we, you know, to really get good, like horse quality hay, cause you know, we're 30 minutes from Churchill Downs and we're mm-hmm. like, we'll just do all square bales, uh, gain as much profit as we can and just build slowly from there. Um, and it's like, once we got those uh, soil samples back, we, there was no way we could actually get good horse quality hay and I definitely didn't want to get started into farming with poor quality right, stuff. Right. Uh, and uh, so we really started looking into regenerative agriculture. That's what led us down that that YouTube wormhole, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So can you guys describe for me what regenerative agriculture is for anybody listening who doesn't maybe know what that term actually means? 
Well, for, you know, regenerative agriculture is just a way for you to farm and have multiple different species of livestock, do multiple different uh, things in your garden and for everything to work together. So like when um, you have cows that graze and you have tall grasses, they take the first portion and then behind it, you can graze the goats that eat the weeds and bring the grass down a little bit more. And then behind them, you can graze the chickens and they peck through the, the manure and the help of the fly population and they get the lower parasites out of the grass. And it's for everything pretty much just to work together to help. I mean, it's not only better for the animal, but it's better for the land itself. Um, and so it's rotational grazing methods. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, keeping all your cows and goat, you know, grass fed and the chickens. We do an organic non-GMO feed for them. And um, so it's just everything for them to just work together that is better just for the animal and better for your land. Yeah. Yeah. So today your farm, I, I heard you say cattle goats and chickens. Do you have all of those types of animals, uh, uh, some grazing animals? And can you tell me a little bit about the model of your farm? Hey, so right now we're at, we're at 62 acres. Um, we we're currently farming or raising animals on about 40 acres of that 60 acres. Um, <clears throat> we have 15 head of cattle that we were attempting to move uh, weekly uh, and we have 200 egg layers. We, this year we're on our last batch of, uh, uh, broiler chickens that we use for meat birds. Um, 300 of those. we do five bag. This is the last year we did five batches of 300 birds each. Um, and we, they all get our meat birds. For instance, they only stay in the barn for about right at about three weeks, give mm -hmm. or take a few days, depending on weather and, uh, on a, on a brooder area. And we get them day old and then we move them out to pasture. They immediately go out in the grass. We have little chicken tractor things that we built yep. and we, they, we drag around. They're actually on wheels so they can, they really, the shelters and chicken tractors. Uh, I know a lot of folks that are into this stuff are familiar with Joel Salatin. Yep. Uh, he's big in rotational grazing methods with cows. I'd love to get to his scale uh, and be able to move my cows daily. Uh, we basically modified a version of his chicken tractor, the Soliton little chicken tractor, and put it on wheels, put a roof on it. Um, they allow for better ventilation and easier to move it, not just for me, but for my wife and my children and, you know, and my father-in-law, who's 73 years old, you know, it's something that doesn't hurt them. <laughs> so, you know, I was taking that into consideration when I was building a lot of this stuff and, then our chicken coop, I refurbished an old uh, hay wagon running gear and built a, a basically an imitation of our barn on top of this hay wagon uh, with a open floor kind of plan. And so the chickens could basically, they, the, their manure can pass through the floor for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it still needs cleaned a couple of times a year. But for the most part, while we're moving them around, they just hook it up to the mule or the side by side and just pull it on the pasture every day. So they never really stay in the same spot every day. They, they, their manure gets spread around, which allows us to fertilize our pasture. So we're not dumping a bunch of lime out there every year and, and spending money there. So we're really trying to yeah. just press it around. So how many years have you guys, uh, have you been doing this? When did you, when did you first start? This is our second season of doing the meat birds. Okay. So, um, 
the first year, like that, that was our first year was 20. Well, we started the building the infrastructures in 2019 that winter. And then our first actual year was 2020. So that was a perfect, you know, with everything going on. With the Talk coronavirus. about being perfect at home, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had all these big plans for these big <laughs> farmers markets around the Louisville area. And, you know, these farmers markets that were having a thousand people on a Friday evening or a Saturday morning showing up all of a sudden dwindled down to a hundred. Yeah. yeah. And everyone, you know, we're selling frozen chicken and everyone's like, well, my freezer's full because everyone was <laughs> stocking. stocking their freezers. And so that, that was hard, but luckily we got some CSA members um, and which is our community sponsored, uh, community supported agriculture uh, memberships. And, you know, last year, um, word of mouth to the point where it was amazing this year because you have people that go out of their cars and they come straight to your booth wanting your product. And that was just, that was a great feeling because last year we didn't have that because the word of mouth and it was our first year. And, you know, we're educating people that come over to our booth and we're talking and because we're the new guy in town. And, and so this year, it was such a humbling experience when you see people that go straight to your booth wanting your product because so-and-so told them this was the chicken to get. Yeah. So yeah. that was that was great. Absolutely. All that work. And and I know, and, and anybody who's seen uh, how farms work, uh, who's operated a farm themselves, like this is a lot of work that you guys are talking about. Like, you oh, know, yeah. um, I've heard it said before that, cows don't take spring break, right? Like it's That's just right. the perfect example of you don't ever get to just turn and walk away from this. It, it's always there. And so, you're out there in your, your winter, your bibs and yeah, it's freezing, but you still got to feed the chickens because so, our egg layers, even though we don't have the meat birds, we still have the egg layers and you still got to check on the cows and yep. so, all of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No spring, no spring break. Uh, yep. So what would you say a, a couple of years into this has been the biggest challenge that you've faced? Because I, I'm positive that you've faced plenty of, of different challenges, big and little, yeah. probably on a daily, maybe an hourly basis sometimes, right? Like that's that's any small business. And then you throw uh, weather and uh, markets and all of the yeah. issues of 2020 into this. And and so I, I know you've faced challenges. What do you think the biggest one that you've faced is? I think for us, well, personally, so Chris is the the muscle, right? So, I mean, I don't, I feel like I can still lift a lot, but when he's gone, you know, lifting 60 pound feed bags and some of the stuff that I'm doing, I, I'm doing, I can still do it, but I'm slower. And one of the big things that happened last year and, oh, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot for this, but <laughs> so I, you know, we were moving the chicken coop on a hill. And it was me and my, the older son, he was uh, 17, I think at the time, yeah, 16. And 16 at the time. And so we're moving the chicken coop and because of the wet on the grass, we were using the Jeep and uh, instead of the tractor. So <laughs> we're moving the chicken coop and I'm a pilot. So I always know you got to chalk a tire after you're done. Yep. But for some reason that morning, I forgot. Right. And so quick, trying to get it I, I take the hitch off and down goes a chicken coop down the hill as fast <laughs> as, it, as it can go. And the door swings open. You see chickens flying out and it hits a tree. And, <laughs> and you know, we're running after this chicken coop. I don't know what we're running after it for because it's not like we're going to be able to stop. This thing weighs a it probably It probably weighs 5,000 pounds. And, <laughs> and it's going as fast as it can down a hill. 
And I was thinking, oh my God, Chris just left on a business trip because <laughs> he's, you know, corporate pilot. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was like, oh my God. So we, um, because we were moving fences that day. And so first things first, I, you know, we got to get the chickens back in the coop or, you know, back. So we started moving the fences down there and then getting the chickens back in. And, you know, uh, one of the tires popped. So I called my dad to help jack up the the chicken coops and we get a new tire put on. I mean, eventually it was all fine. I think we ended up losing five chickens that day because mm-hmm. they got ran over because the door swung open. And so... That was a terrible day for me in farming, but even on the terrible days, you still have to, you can't just quit. You can't just stop. And so even with Chris being gone, we all figured it out. We got the chickens back in the coop. We moved the fence around to where the chicken hit the tree until we could jack up the tire. And, you know, it ended up being fine. And so that was my first experience on the farm without Chris being there and us being able to just figure it out and what to do. Um, so that was really hard. But the big thing for us being first generation farmers is I think it was the the planning and the marketing because I don't have a marketing degree. I went to college, but it was for aviation. And so trying to figure out you know, what our community wants and how to give them something that's different than what other people have. And now everything's on social media and, you know, it's not like it was back 20 years ago where farmers can just be farmers. Now we have to post on Facebook and post on Instagram and, oh, maybe we should do some YouTube videos too, but none of us know what the right, you know, I think that part is. It's hard. It's on that side. Yeah. What's yours? I think when I when I look at our challenges that we've had so far, um, I would say our hardest challenge has been the coronavirus. Oh yeah. Um, being our first year in production, we had a market plan kind of drawn up, fairly good, based on the current markets. You know, it was going into April. Farmers markets are starting to open up in May. We're getting prepped. We have our first batch of birds getting ready to go process. And all of a sudden, the the processing facilities, you know, COVID hits, processing facilities call me. We can't process your birds, you know, and, and the, you know, the type of meat birds we use, they, they grow so fast. You know, you have, you're expecting a five-pound carcass kind of bird to be able to hand out. Next thing you know, by the time we can finally get them into processing, they're now 10, 12, 14 pound birds that are carcasses. They look like turkeys more than they do chickens, you know, and we're burning through feed faster than we can keep it in. And, and, you know, we were losing a lot of money, you know, uh, just in feed and the ability to get our, our birds processed. And, you know, we were trying to come up with ideas to try to, how are we going to, you know, affect this? And, you know, now we get to the, finally get to the farmer's markets and, and there's not a thousand people running through there. There's a hundred, maybe 200 in a, in a, in that window. And we're the new guys in town. And when you're, when you're living in a small town and you're the new one, you got to build that trust and that relationship with your community and, uh, and with the folks that go. And so a lot of it was just the continuous talking and, and we, what we ended up doing a lot was, uh, we started calling homeowners associations in town like, Hey, you know, let us bring our farmer's market to you and let us set up at your clubhouse. And, We'll set up tables and booths and mm-hmm. and make it look respectable and you know not and you know really dress it up and look nice and not yeah just, yeah we did um, several farm stands at different neighborhoods and eventually got to the point where 
when we stopped doing that and did, um, now we do two farmer's markets, people would come by the Jeffersonville farmer's market. I'm like, oh, I think you set up in our neighborhood before. And yeah. yay, you're here. And they would buy something from us. Yeah. So that yeah. worked out. But it, it really took us you know, putting the feet to the pavement, just like a salesperson and get out there and, and just sell. Yep, and that was probably the hardest thing for us being first year when nobody knows who we are, and well, this is your first year of production, yeah. you know, getting a website going, business cards, and yeah. you know, we had a post, some posters of our first year. I mean, just anything that could draw someone's eye to our booth for them to get questions and us to be able to have a conversation with our customers. Yeah, it's uh, it. You're not just farming. You're uh, financial. You're the CFO. You're the chief marketing <laughs> yeah. officer. Your operations. Your right. uh, accountant. You know, like all the things. And and it it is a challenge. I think in any small business. And and like I said, in farming, uh, it's got its own unique challenges. So, um, are I know you said that uh, Chris. I think that you work full time off the farm as well. Brittany, do you work off the farm as well? And so this is like just a piece of your life, but not the entire driver? The first year I was at Republic Airlines. Um, I was flying, uh, flying for them. And then we were getting so busy with the farm. And then I got, I got furloughed. And when they um, called us back off the furlough, I had to make a decision. I was like, I was talking to Chris. I was like, well, if you're, cause he had also just recently taken a new job and he was on the road a lot mm-hmm. and uh, we were trying to make the decision. Well, do I just stay work the farm full time? That way we know someone is here and not relying on neighbors or right. my parents to come. And so I made the decision to not go back. And so I'm still with the army reserves and Chris is still flying full time uh, on the corporate side. So y- y- any way you look at it, you have very full lives. You have kids, you yeah. have other commitments, yeah. uh, you know, other jobs and, and juggling this. And so I know you're doing it because you love it, right? Like that, that boils down to farming most of the times. So like, Absolutely. And, you know, there's days where it is really hard. It's pouring rain, you're out there moving the chickens or you didn't have that great of a day at the farmer's market. And sometimes you question like, is this worth it? Or, you know, the days you're out in the hot burning sun, you know, working in the uh, the garden and there's n- no breeze going through those tomato plants and it is just hot and you're just dripping. You're like, oh my gosh, is this worth it? But it's followed by the days where your son's out there and he got to see a calf being born yeah. or he's out there with us helping plant. And then it's like, oh, it absolutely is worth it because he's learning. I mean, he's learning that he, he got to see life, you know, you got to see a calf being born. And then he understands also the whole circuit of it all. Cause he knows that our broiler birds, they don't stick around for long that right. we eat them. And he knows that, I mean, he's five and understands that yes, we eat some of the food or yeah. the yeah. animals that are on our property this for, for dinner. Eating. Exactly. Yeah. It's a pretty important life kids. lesson. Absolutely. And, uh, so then it's like, it, it is worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, so aside from from everything you do, I understand that you're also getting started on a veteran coalition. Can you tell me a little more about about your work with veterans? Yeah. So um, the first year in operation, when it was really slow, we we always had in the back of our heads we wanted to do something um, that would help our veteran community, or you know, just help out the community in general. And we would have you know 
a freezer full of chicken and refrigerators full of eggs. And we're like, we need to figure out how we can help. And so we started calling around to different food pantries and they're like, are you guys stocked full of chicken and eggs? And they're like, oh my gosh, we would love some. So we started donating eggs and chicken. And then we found, um, when I called the VA to see if there's any veteran homeless shelters through them, we were able to find, um, a shelter called Liberty Place, which is about 20 minutes from where we are. They house 16 veterans. And so now we're pretty much their sole provider for chicken and eggs. We donate to them almost on a weekly basis. Um, and so there's one, two, two food pantries that we donate regularly to almost weekly. That's um, Harrison County Community Services here uh, in our county. And then we do Salvation Army. Um, and then maybe once a month we'll do, a, there's another homeless shelter in Jeffersonville that we'll donate. And then in the winter, we um, donated, because um, we had a really cold winter last last year. And so we donated a few times to some churches that were housing some homeless um, people from the Louisville area. Um, and so through that, we're able to, you know, just really help out our community and the veterans. And we have plans of expanding that. And Chris can talk a little bit more about that part. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So kind of where, you know, like Brittany was leading into, we just really, I feel anytime if you're going to, feel complete in, in your, in your life is you have to take care of your backyard. You have to take care of your community. And really we looked at each other and like, you know, we need, we need to be pillars in this community, not just as farmers, but as people and, uh, and really give back. And so what we thought about was, okay, let's, let's, let's start with our veterans, you know, the, the, the veteran suicide rate, you know, everybody's doing pushups on Facebook, you know, 21 or 22 pushups a day, you know, looking back at veterans that, that have committed suicide. So we're like, well, let's start feeding their minds with healthy food instead mm -hmm. of processed food and canned goods and all this stuff, which is still great. Uh, and they need it uh, for the food pantries. But, you know, we're, we're planning, we're growing this amazing food here. And they've already proven that healthy food and a healthy diet improves cognitive thinking and also improves the way you feel about yourself. And I think that if we can give them healthy food and start improving the way they feel about themselves and how they're thinking, maybe they'll finally, they'll find that purpose again and become successful and um, productive members of society. So yeah. what we're, how we're going to build the nonprofit, uh, the KB Liberty Veteran Coalition is by creating, you know, community farming lots around the metropolitan areas. Uh, I really haven't determined a complete size yet, but we're looking at five to 10 acres. We know some city structures are different than others. Um, so we, we'd have to do some more research on that for each different community. But just like, you know, some cities have non, you know, nonprofit community gardens where they, you know, old folks, disabled folks, they come in there and, and garden, you know, just cause as a pastime, but we want to do it at a larger scale. Yeah. So, we, we create these community gardens full of volunteers and some full-time employees with uh, with a little market stand to help keep the lights on on a normal business plan kind of style, pay the taxes on it, pay the, pay the bills, and then the money donated is for growth to run an education center where we can teach veterans and family members of veterans that might be, you know, financially distressed and work with a local community college, start working with all of the different 
uh, trades that actually come within agriculture because you can almost touch every single trade around agriculture right. from basic from basic construction to electrician uh, welding heavy equipment mechanics automotive mechanics I mean all kinds of stuff animal nutrition uh, husbandry soil biology you name it right uh, all that relies around agriculture. So why not use an agriculture-based education while giving back to the community? Because we can grow enough food, you know, just on a handful of these community gardens to fill the food pantries and to fill the homeless shelters with healthy foods. And while educating and helping people get back on their feet, you know, and maybe giving them a purpose to live again versus the the hard part is when they start committing suicide, right? you know, and, uh, that's what we, that's where we think we can affect it and really improve the lives of not only just the veterans, but the local community. And, you know, as a side effect, that helps relieve the tax burden of the taxpayers and the local governments. You know, if, if now we come together as our own church per se, you know, and, uh, we work truly work together as a community and, to help better the people that may not have, that might be having issues. Okay, so Chris, can you tell me a little bit more about maybe some different parts and pieces of the nonprofit? Yeah, so uh, the best thing about our nonprofit is people have been really reaching out to us. Um, even though we haven't, you know, we're licensed, we've, we've got the business end of it taken care of, we're waiting on the IRS portion to be truly tax exempt. So when people donate money, they can usually use it as a write-off. But really what touches touches our hearts the most is when people give just to give. Um, you know, they trust us. Uh, they, they see us. We try to be completely transparent with everything we do. And, you know, everything from just jumping in our car and driving to the local grocery store and picking up the, the leftover pastries that, you know, haven't been sold so we can help distribute those amongst the food pantries. Um but a, a guy, former Hawkeye, uh, Iowa guy, um, Chad Lubin with the Lubin Group, mm-hmm. um, him and his family donate a month without question. Wow. And and has been since the day we started. Um, and, and I told him our story. And he's like, he's, you know, he's a true and true Christian, you know, good moral beliefs. And he's just like, Chris, I trust you. I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, and I, I keep telling him, I'm like... Uh, I, you know, I'm sorry, we're still waiting on the IRS, you know, with the long forms and everything else to get the tax exemption done. And, and, you know, I, I really, really, truly appreciate him and his family and, and his group of folks that, you know, they just continue to give and, and without question. And it's folks like him and, and other folks that have donated to us, you know, we apologize for the delays in, in, in getting that tax exemption done. So, because we think we owe that to them uh, because they deserve it. He's donating money without question. Right. You know, and and if it wasn't for things like that, you know, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. And, and because it, it really, COVID has, has affected so many people uh, financially uh, on that nonprofit side. We, we wouldn't be able to donate the amount of food and the amount of eggs and be able to grow it and be able to look at these possibilities of growth and creating these gardens and, and these education centers without folks like him. Yeah, it, it really does take a village, right, to, to be able to build these things. So that that's wonderful. Absolutely. absolutely. I absolutely love it. You know, you guys finding each other, 
finding uh, what you could build your life around, you know, feeling so strongly about the type of agriculture that you uh, that you do, and then using that to help the community of people that you know need help, you know, and and not just uh, in one way, but but in many ways. And so I absolutely love it, and and um, I'm so proud to be able to hear your story and to be able to share it because I think it it, it is such an important thing that any of us can take away, right? That we all have the ability to affect change in our communities or change for a group of people uh, that maybe we're connected to or that we care about. And so I think that's something for all of us to remember to take away from from your story for sure. So thank you again, uh, both of you, Brittany and Chris, for joining us on Farm Her Talks. Your story is inspiring. Uh, I can't thank you enough. And, and I'm sure all the listeners would feel the same way about your service to our country. Uh, and happy Veterans Day on that note. So thank you for joining us on Farm Her Talks. Oh, thank thank you. you.